forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is it. Hi. Hi. Thank Hello. you all for being here. Uh, this is a podcast. We're going to <laughs> talk onto microphones. Uh, what I'm going to do first is ask you all to introduce yourselves. Tell us uh, somewhere the listener may have seen your name on television. And Keto, let's start with you. Sure. My name is uh, Keto Shimizu. I am currently an executive producer on the show DC's Legends of Tomorrow. That is where you will have most recently seen my name. But before that, I was on Arrow. And before that, I was on Being Human. And before that, my very first staff writing job was on The Cape. Oh, oh sure. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Alex Wu. Uh, you will not have seen my name on season two of The Terror, colon uh, <laughs> infamy, because it's not uh, on yet. But maybe in a couple of days you will. Uh, so I uh, um, co-created and, uh, and ran that. Um, before that, uh, maybe I, if you're one of the five people who saw Manhattan, that, that might see that. <laughs> loved Manhattan. I loved it. <laughs> uh, before that, uh, six years of my life were spent on True Blood. Um, Love it. <laughs> uh, and, oh, just going with this. It's just like, it, it, it gets, it's like, um, uh, uh, the, that movie where they get progressively younger. When, when my, well, <laughs> you're, you're a Benji Buttons. Benjamin Button uh, life as I got, got progressively What was your lighter. Uh, first staff job? Uh, well, we go back Sleeper Cell, LAX, then Wonderfalls. 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 Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right, we'll get into it. Catherine. Hi, uh, my name is Catherine Beatty. I'm an executive story editor on NCIS New Orleans. Um, and that's the only place you have seen my name unless you like squint really hard at the end <laughs> titles um, for various other shows. But you so, did your time mm -hmm. as like script I coordinator. I was a, a script coordinator for a long time yeah. um, and assistant, you know, office PA before that. So, yeah. so what, yeah. Was that all? That wasn't all on NCIS. Right. No, I actually, I started my career at the Ellen, De Ellen DeGeneres show. Uh, I was there for a year and then quit because I wanted to get into scripted. Oh, no. um, and then worked at Californication and various other Showtime shows for a long time. Um, then did a quick stint at ABC. And then I landed on the first season of NCIS NOLA as the script coordinator. Mm -hmm. And I did that for three seasons um, before I got staffed. Oh, my well, goodness. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's a lot of time. <laughs> that is a lot of time. Um, and, and not unusual. From, yes. From what yes. Of course. Yeah. Um, and while we're on the subject, let's sort of talk about that breaking mm -hmm. in process. Uh, we can keep this sort of brief because as we often say on here, no two stories are the same, mm. uh, but there are things that we can sort of draw out uh, that that are, are uh, good lessons from mm -hmm. the breaking in story. So as you were uh, working at, in these various roles as, you know, PAs and mm -hmm. script coordinators and stuff, what was your writing life like? <laughs> so it was um, actually once I quit uh, the Ellen show, I decided to go back to UCLA extension. Um, so while I was, you know, uh, Office PA and script coordinator. I was in the extension program, which is about a year and a half. So I was taking classes um, and writing specs at the time. People were still reading specs. So I was doing that. Yeah. Um, what and were the specs that you? Were I, my first one was Castle, mm -hmm. and the second one was The Good Wife. This shows you how like long ago it oh, was. Well, um, hang but, on. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask okay, you too. Okay, yeah. I love hearing what specs yeah. people wrote because mine was like Will and Grace and Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> uh, Alex, what was? Did you write specs early on? I did. What were they? I did. Uh, it was it was six feet under. Can you hear? Me? Ah. Uh, it was uh, a spec of six feet under. Do you and, remember what it was about? Uh, 
somewhat. Uh, It's interesting because even though I worked with Alan Ball on True Blood, I I think Six Feet Under has been more of an influence on me than than True Blood was. Uh, But it was, you know, I was at the sort of tail end of a migration in 2003 of playwrights Mm -hmm. to um, uh, to television. Uh, And I'd been working, you know, as a working is a very, very (laughs) loose term as a playwright. you don't really earn that much money as a playwright. <laughs> uh, but uh, at, at that time, you know, uh, unbeknownst to me, you know, television was getting really, really good. Mm-hmm. So Six Feet was one of the first shows I really studied. And, uh, and so that was the, that was the, the um, one, uh, and really, I think only spec I wrote. Really? Yeah. Um, and it seems like you, that is often, and maybe this was your experience too, Kato, that like, you sort of internalize that show that you love, that you're mm-hmm. learning from, which is why, like, my first specs were Buffy specs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we knew that – my partner and I knew that show inside. Now, what, what was yours? So, for me, I had uh, – you know, I had gone to school for um, filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to do some screenwriting in that, but hadn't done any TV when I first came out sure. to L.A. And I worked in post-production and it – and I was writing like, you know, I wrote like a feature and like, you know, was hoping to get back into that. But I hadn't even really explored television as an option until I learned about all the writing fellowships that all the different studios and networks had. And that prompted me to be like, oh, TV, let's check this out. <laughs> and uh, oh, you have to write a spec script. OK, I've never done that. Uh, so I just started reading scripts, whatever scripts mm-hmm. I could get my hand on TV wise. But when it came to the, you know, needing to put pen to paper and, you know, what was my favorite show then at that time? Lost. That was the show that was on the air that I watched religiously, that I adored and that I knew through and through. And uh, to call it ambitious is, uh, (laughs) you know, maybe downplaying it a little bit. Um, But I, yeah, so I wrote a Lost and I wrote it, you know, having it be an episode that was like directly in between two episodes in mm-hmm. season five. It was like, That's I knew great. exactly what holes I needed to fill and had poured over Lostpedia for like all the information <laughs> that was out there on all of these different characters. And uh, yeah, I wrote it. And that's actually what got me into the NBC fellowship. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then in that fellowship, from what I understand, mm-hmm. it's, it's like many of the others mm-hmm. where they sort of, do they treat it like a room and you work on your kind of, uh, it's, it's, original? it's twofold. You have, uh, two nights a week. One night is uh, for your writing. Mm-hmm. And that's where the writing coach, Jen Grisanti, is there. And she's taking you through – at the time I did it, it was you had to write a new spec. And then you also had to write a new pilot during the right. duration of the program. So uh, the first few weeks during that Tuesday night, we were concentrating on you know pitching what specs we would potentially write, getting approval, getting outlines, first draft, all that. Um, and then the other half was – you know to, or a little more than half was devoted to your next pilot. So during the program, I wrote a Dexter because mm-hmm. that was still also on the air. Um, but then wrote my original pilot. Right. And, you know. Interesting. Um, all right. We'll mm-hmm. pick up there sure. when we come back. Um, Catherine, as you were writing your specs mm-hmm. and, and, you know, generating material, were you able to get it into the hands of people who should recognize that you wanted to write? Um, well, it was kind of an interesting situation when I was on Californication. Um, I loved it there. It was like summer camp. It was, you know, we had 12 episodes, half hour. We showed up in, in, you know, 
February and worked until August and, yeah. and hung out. And, um, but as the seasons went on, the writing staff got smaller and smaller. Mm. Um, and so up until the last, when the last season was just Tom Kapanos, the showrunner, his assistant and me, and <laughs> oh there was God. no, there was no writer's room. Um, <laughs> And so I love Tom. He's such a talented writer and I've, I learned so much from him. I knew he was not going to give me a writing slot on the show just because he wrote all the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just stayed there and wrote my own stuff because it was comfortable, I think. But <laughs> had I like decided to leave and go to a different show sooner, like perhaps it would have happened for me sooner. But I kind of just took that time of like, I'm on a great show that I love. Sure. Um, I can just write. Uh, pilot, yeah. you know, on um, when I'm waiting for the scripts to come out. So on a, um, on a grant from the California. Yes, they found basically, <laughs> basically, yeah. So I just took that as my personal time to develop material, and um, and yeah. then what did you do with that stuff? How did you start to you know kick down doors? Yeah, so I so I had my um, specs and pilots, and then um, I did a very short lived show called Black Box, which is a 13 mm-hmm. episode on ABC. Um, and there was a writer on that show. We only overlapped for a week, um, but she really liked me. I really liked her. And we got coffee at the end of that show. And she said, I'm com- I'm going to NCIS New Orleans. I'll recommend you. And um, so the minute I got on NCIS New Orleans, which was at that point um, run by Jeffrey Lieber, mm-hmm. he uh, said, he said, hey, do you want to write? Like, let me see your material. And like within the first two weeks of working there. So yeah. I gave him my That's samples. Yeah. Yeah. I gave That's him my samples and um, he gave me a assignment in season two. And then from there, you know. That's great. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the lessons we can take from this is, you know, you had done the work mm-hmm. all along. You were ready for when that opportunity right. came. Right. Yeah. And I think you you actively have to seek out people mm-hmm. that are going to give you that shot. And you can't sit around and wait for it to happen. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Because, well, let's mm-hmm. let's talk about that. Alex, when you got here uh, and uh, became, you know, put playwriting aside for a while, um, how did you get a toe in the door? Oh, God. The world was so different in 2003. Yeah. Uh, I, I had... Uh, yeah, you know, been I, I just had a play off Broadway that uh, um, I, I wouldn't say it did well because it didn't, but it did get a very <laughs> kind review in the New York Times, mm-hmm. which might have been worth more than That's cool, the show yeah. actually. You know, having people come and see it, yeah, uh, and that. Uh, Combined with, uh, with with the spec, and you know, there was a bit of cachet of, uh, of playwrights. Uh, um, got me, uh, got me my first job. It was uh, very, very late into staffing season. Mm-hmm. It was like the middle of May wow. of two thousand three when uh, when I had uh, uh, signed with my agent. So it was, uh, you know, they, they really pulled the rabbit out of a hat. You know, That's wild. They had sent me home with. A stack of chess <laughs> tapes. That's how long ago oh this my was. Gosh. Um, um, and I watched, I don't know, maybe yep. 20, 30 shows. <laughs> Wonderful. Is it the one? This is the one I want. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wrote back a whole thing. It's like, this is what I think of this one. This is what I think of this one. You know, I, I could probably work on, on these, but and then there's Wonderfalls. Huh. And, you know, and Wonderfalls lasted for what? four episodes four or five episodes (laughs) but it was well regarded yeah um in town and that allowed me to get another job oh interesting job so um how did you get those signed with those agents in the first place was it through playwriting uh the playwriting thing helped it it was again it's one of those remarkable remarkable coincidences my first job in television 
if I actually think about it, was in game shows. Really? Uh, I had I was supplementing my my playwriting uh, career, such as it was, with uh, uh, by writing trivia. And that was, you know, Hilarious. that was kind of my thing. Uh, <laughs> I still love trivia. Uh, and I was a researcher on a show called, if you remember, a show called The Weakest Link. Mm-hmm. Of course. Everybody um, remembers The Weakest Link. My husband was on that show. Really? <laughs> he, he was on it as a contestant? He was on it. Was he, he The Weakest he, Link? Goodbye. Uh, How do you do? I mean, eventually. I mean, he, he didn't start there. Uh, he was, he did like the college. He was, when he was uh-huh. in college and he did like the fraternity week or something, or Greek week or oh something. Oh my God. I was yeah. probably sitting on the other side <laughs> of the monitor. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was a Madonna song that got him off. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, it was so embarrassing. I, I, I watch it now and I'm like, how did you not know that? That's great. Uh, so I was, I was, the, I was in the NBC, uh, on the NBC lot and I was in the commissary and I ran into a, uh, a friend of mine from college who had just started her job uh, um, as a very junior executive at NBC and she said, hey, you ever considered doing uh, um, scripted television? I thought, uh, I don't know. Sure, but, yeah. <laughs> I love trivia. <laughs> I, like, I, I like trivia too much. I'm, really, my heart is in trivia is what I said. Uh, but when uh, The Week's Link went off the air and I had nothing else to do, mm. I wrote that that uh, spec six feet and and also by that point uh my my play had run uh in new york so i you know handed those things uh off to my college friend who sent it uh but it was real i mean it was may of 2003 by then so i didn't think that and and did just to point out to the listener like that used to matter that timing really really used to matter um like being a month late or even if you were a few weeks later that that could have been the ball game for you that season because it wasn't year-round staffing like right. it is now. Right. Um, Keta, were you able to get representation through the NBC program? Ultimately, yes. Okay. I mean, I did, you know, sort of seek out some other avenues. But really, it was uh, from the NBC Writers on the Verge program where my stuff was sent out into a lot of different places. And um, my current agent, I mean, immediately responded to my material immediately. And, and this was like early. This was like in wow. February. He was like, I want to I want to represent her. I want to meet her. Like, And I was, of course, at that time, I was like, well, you know, maybe you should see who else responds <laughs> to my material. You know, just like see who's out there. Uh, try to play coy. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it was actually – it's uh, – meeting him and then his wife was also his partner and seeing the two of them together and their dynamic and just seeing how awesome and weird they were. I was like, <laughs> you guys are my people. Like it just it really actually ended up fitting really perfectly. That's and really important. they are still my agents and I still That's love them. Great. Um even with all the ATN sure. thing, they they signed immediately. They, they're like, "What?" Um, That's great. So they're they're very writer friendly, very writer uh, protective, nice. and they're um, they're awesome. So I've been really happy with them. Yeah, finding those right people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, makes it a collaboration. Yeah, right. It makes it it makes it good for your career, but also yeah. good for your mental yeah. health and good it's for like your creativity. I'm a, a proud boutique agent yeah. supporter. That's good to hear. Um, yeah, they've done really well by me. Um, while we're on the subject, like let's let's talk about agents. Uh, we won't get timely because we tend not to on this. Um, but I'm curious to hear about your relationship with your agents when you had relationships with your agents. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, I, I I feel like personally, I spent a long time trying to understand and manage my agents for what 
we wanted our career to be. Uh, and I think that's something that doesn't go remarked upon enough is how much work you have to do for the people who work for you. Uh, can mm -hmm. you guys speak to that? Um, sure. So I just signed with uh, my agents about three years ago when I got staffed on NCIS New Orleans. And it was kind of an interesting situation because I had never taken any meetings before. And I go to meet these guys and uh, at Paradigm. And the meeting is like an hour long. And I, I don't know like when they're going to say like, uh, you know, if I, if I have to sign something or if they even like me. And then at the end, they were like, okay, so like, we really want to work with you. Like, let us know what we need to do to make that happen. And I was like, it's happening. It, I, like, I, great. Um, so, so I signed with them. Um, but you know, I was a staff writer and then a story editor and they also package NCIS New Orleans. So I wasn't paying them a commission. And so for like a year, I was like, do I even call them? Like, do they want to, <laughs> like, what? I don't want to bother them. And I, get, I, it took me a long time to realize that like they, they're, they're working for me. Like even, mm -hmm. even though I'm not make, making them money yeah. right now, like they're working for me and I had to get over that. Um, and then, you know, and the, of course, in like the, two months before the vote came up, they were working really hard for me. Um, but um, I love them. They're great people. And I hope I can work with them again. Sure. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, but you know, I just, because I was a lower level, like there wasn't a whole lot and for us had, to right. do. You had you know? a job, you weren't allowed to yeah. develop. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, mm -hmm. So did you need to sort of put out a call to action for them? Was there stuff that you wanted in those two years? I was actually just focused on doing a good job on the show. We had, um, that show has had its ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot, you know, going on there and then just working on my own stuff. And then I didn't even realize that I was able to develop because I like never saw my contract and it was like th this whole thing. And so once I realized with about like two months left to go of our relationship that we could do things, uh, it oh, was wow. we put it into overdrive, but um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, Le I'm, that's an important lesson. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, writers inform yourself because absolutely. people aren't going to tell you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. What has been your experience with representatives, Alex? I, I've only had my one agent for you now for what is it now sixteen years. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I I I think a lot about like how much of the course of your career is uh you know who's responsible for it mm -hmm. and how much of it is your agents doing and early on in my career it's like my agent got me a job <laughs> oh my god my agent got me another job like yeah. you know, that show lasted four episodes got me another job <laughs> that show lasted five episodes it got me another job you know and and you think you know, the agent is, is is magically doing everything for you right. but if you if you just rely entirely on your representation to do things for you mm -hmm. uh <laughs> not doing yourself any favors yeah. yeah um which i think a lot of writers are realizing now mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, which is good for them to realize <laughs> So I, I, I yeah. Um, so what were that, you doing in that interim to sort of help yourself? Uh, that's a, that's a really good question because I, I I think in that in that interim I think I was I was heavily reliant on my agent to get me the next job, the next mm -hmm. job, the next job for my first three or four jobs, and then I had you know six years uh, uh, on True Blood. Um, hmm. and then I I sort of realized. Coming out on the end of that, I left before the last season of mm -hmm. True Blood uh, because I had to do something else. I had to do mm -hmm. something on my own, and that's that's where I, I realized, okay, they can keep getting me on staffs, uh, but if I'm gonna actually 
create something, develop something on my own. I have to, you know, self-start a little bit. So that was, and and that's already, that's a 10 year gap between when I started and when I started developing, which is a much longer time than, than you might see now. Yeah, I think that that's true. But it's also, again, for, cause I started around the same time that wasn't unusual then you sort of do put in your years and, and sit in rooms and, and learn how to do this stuff yeah. and then are given an opportunity. Uh, I mean, when, when I first started, I called up, you know, any friend I had who, who was uh, working on the show. And uh, uh, one of my college friends is a writer just nominated for an Oscar, Vanessa Taylor, mm-hmm. who uh, had uh, had been on staffs for, for quite some time. And so she sort of showed me uh, the ropes and said, you know, just expect it almost like the army, you know, every <laughs> year you're different. You know, you should be yeah. expected. Story editor, story editor, executive yeah. story editor. You know, you should you should go one a year. Yeah. Maybe you might get a double bump at some point. That would be great. But you know, if you're stuck sort of at the same level for several years in a row, okay, something's going on. Mm-hmm. So that was my expectation that it would be at least six or seven years before I got to co-EP or EP, mm-hmm. and then and then. And then at the end of that, start developing. So uh, that's very different from the present climate where Absolutely. you know people are developing and suddenly executive you're show running and you've mm-hmm. never been on a set before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, 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 that has that has also recently happened. That yeah. is, that, that's uh, you know for me it's I, I worked for 16 years and this is the first show I've ever run. Yeah. So uh, um, and the reasons behind that we can get into later. Well, yeah. I mean, let's talk about some of the rooms, how the rooms function that you all have been. In. Um, and I'm, what I'm curious to know, just sort of as a jumping off point, is what do you wish you had known in those first couple of rooms that you discovered from doing this for many years? Oh, man. And this is good advice for you. Mm-hmm. I'm listening. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I had really good guidance. Mm-hmm. I was really fortunate when I went into my first room, the Cape. Who that, was running um, That was uh, John Worth and oh. Tom Wheeler. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then Tony Graffia was the co-EP mm-hmm. on that. Uh, again, all of them amazing people. And everyone in between was absolutely lovely and funny and creative and awesome people and and again i was totally green i had never set foot in a writer's room until that point so i definitely was the one coming in and like my credentials at that point really were that i was was a fangirl that i knew (laughs) comics that i you know was obsessed with batman that like Mm -hmm. those those were the things that my enthusiasm for the genre was really and and my running sample are really the things that got me the job so but I wasn't really expected to write much because hmm. it was definitely a room where, you know, the the creator sort of knew who he wanted to write. And again, we didn't know how long we were actually going to go. So it was definitely writing wasn't really on the table for me. So it was sort of like, okay, how else do I contribute? Like, I'm not used to the pitch environment. Like, I don't know yeah. what I'm doing. Like, so I was just, I was kind of the cheerleader. <laughs> I was, you know, when a day, when an idea was great, I would I'd get really excited about it. And <laughs> mm-hmm. that was sort of a nice gauge for the show. And I'd be like, oh, okay, that's, that's kind of working. then. Oh, and, uh, and I wrote on the boards, which was another thing that's like, mm-hmm. you know, um, that, and that was advice given to me by Tony. She was like, Hey, like, I know that you're new, like a great way to learn and a great way to contribute is to be the board writer. And I was like, okay. And so I started writing the boards and suddenly That's I was cool. invaluable because no one else wanted to write <laughs> on the boards. Yeah. And I had need enough board writing that I could, you know, put all the stuff up there and, <laughs> and it was, it was useful. Um, 
I guess the the thing that I wish I had known that I've certainly learned since then is to trust my storytelling gut, like mm-hmm. to and to um and to let it out, you know, like I was very shy about my ideas in that room and being human helped sort of open me up more. But again, that was, that was a very, very, very safe room and a very intimate room. Um, But I learned from watching some writers there who were like expert pitchers, like people like Chris Dingus, who I was just like, I would just be floored. He would just, (laughs) something would just come out of his mouth and it was like a whole story. And I was like, whoa, like, how do you do that? How does your brain fire like that where you can just come up with this really emotional, incredible journey? And then it's like, if it doesn't work, he's like, okay. And he just comes on with something else. And I was just like, what? Like, it was so amazing. But I have since learned how to do that. And now I have, you know, the younger generation in my room being like, how do you do that? And I'm like, (laughs) it's really just, you kind of have to learn how to tell the story on Mm -hmm. the fly. And, and, and again, you have to sort of tell that beginning, middle and end. And even if it doesn't stick, it's like, all right, well then what's the other version of it? But, Mm -hmm. you know, but to, to feel a story in your gut, to feel an emotion in your gut, and then to learn how to put it into uh, the story form concisely as possible, (laughs) unless you're not rambling, rambling, rambling. But um, I wish I had known earlier that I could do that, that I had that ability and that I just had to sort of gain that confidence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in order to do that. Because since then, that is, that's, you know, gotten me very far. (laughs) Sure. But, and it does seem like that is a muscle to develop. Absolutely. I mean, part of it is confidence, absolutely. But part of it is... Um, just just the storytelling, yes. right? And and that's something and, you discover. And as you also, go. you know, when I was just a staff writer, like no one needed me sure. to do that. <laughs> like yeah. there were people in the room whose mm-hmm. job it was to do that. That's a good point. And I was the one who would be like, "Oh, that's cool!" Like, or, <laughs> you know, or, or or try and offer like a little nugget. And mm-hmm. I would be like, "Oh, what if we did that?" You know, just a little twist on it. But I wasn't the one who was being paid or expected to. Yeah to come up with the big ideas. So, um, certainly, you know, I think listening is a big thing, like listening and, and certainly learning from the people around you, like just soak it all up. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you were lucky you got that, um, that second experience on Mm -hmm. being human, which I think was a smaller room too. Much smaller. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think we had Anna on Mm -hmm. the podcast around the time of that show. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, as you say, like a very supportive room so you really got to learn to do yeah. that you got to gain the confidence yeah. that. um alex was that your uh experience on being on true blood for so long that you could sort of develop those muscles needed to go to the next level on other shows yeah it, the, the, one of the things that really uh has has surprised me is how much influence either your first boss or your first meaningful boss yeah. uh, has on you. Um, it, it, and it's not necessarily even with your own writing, though sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there there are just like formatting things that I realized I got from Tim Minear. <laughs> like really? you know, the, like I, what? It's like, <laughs> the, way, the way he um, uh, paces out the dialogue by putting specifically putting pauses and beats in the yeah. dialogue is something I still do. And I always <laughs> do because the reader is putting up a little theater in, in their brain, you know, as, as you, and, and, you know, typically if you're a busy executive, you're going, oh, yeah, just go right through it. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, the scene is not meant to be steamrolled through and you have to build those pauses in. Um, uh, 
but uh but alan's the one i spent you know mm-hmm. the 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 uh you know the uh, the most time with, and so in a sense, I consider myself extraordinarily lucky because I, I worked with some very humane showrunners. Um, and what I have found myself doing since then is that I don't have a conscious, uh, you know, uh, a muscle in my brain thinking what would Alan have done mm. or what would he do. But I find myself doing some things like, oh, that's exactly what Alan <laughs> would do, maybe for better or for worse. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know that that's sort of. Uh, I, and I would have thought, you know, at that point I was a fully formed writer. You know, I was in my mid thirties when I was working on on True Blood, yeah. and you know, I would, but but so much of of um, the management of the show, mm-hmm. and and a lot of a lot of how I approach story, but but even more so, just treating other people uh you know came from uh from just osmosis well let's let's dig in on that for a second what does that mean for you as you're running the terror uh as you said your your first show running job um what were some of these specific things that you picked up from alan or from from other jobs too that you applied to running that show well it 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 it, it builds on the (coughs) question you asked before it's like what do you wish you knew it's like i Mm -hmm. I go again when i uh started i didn't realize that the job of being a television writer especially as you go up and up and up how much of it has nothing to do with what you know as the actual act of writing <laughs> yeah you know i put it at like 80 percent is not actually sitting behind a computer yeah. or writing it's doing all sorts of other things little minutiae that you just never would have imagined had anything to do with writing and so that you know and those are the things i had to develop because as a playwright all i would do is sit there and i would write sure and write alone. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so being in a room with a, a group of other writers, the that that kind of collaboration. Actually, I probably pulled more of that from being in writing workshops, mm. which I'd, I had done all through college and grad school, as opposed to being a playwright where I'm just kind of yeah. by myself. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I all the all of this, you know, these. Uh, for lack of a better word, management techniques, you mm-hmm. know, because uh, uh, I've never worked in any sort of corporate environment, you know, but, you know, the showrunner is sort of the CEO of the corporation, mm-hmm. right? So, totally. you know, and, and leads, uh, you know, leads by example. And, uh, and I, uh, you know, I saw how, how much uh, trust Alan had put in his writers. Um, he would frequently rewrite very, very lightly. Hmm. And so you knew that what you were writing was going to go on the screen. <laughs> so you better make it good. Yeah. Um, which is empowering. You, it's empowering because it gives you absolutely. a sense of ownership over, yeah. over the work. Absolutely. Um, so I, I remembered that because I realized, you know, this is another writer who has been working you know, uh, for, for many, many years, even if they aren't, uh, uh, you know, at an EP level and, and, you know, they put those words on the page because they thought, you know, they genuinely thought it was good. So I'm not going to, mess with it if it's like well i want to done it that way right mm-hmm. you know if, if it works you know that's great it or, or maybe you know <laughs> right. a little bit but, you know not not what it will get it to that voice that is yeah. yours but there's still like that author's voice is in it too yeah uh, yeah and and also you know i recognized you know very very quickly uh just from uh you know from from 
the seat of a, a writer in a room, how all consuming that job is. And uh, universally, every single showrunner I had worked for was miserable in the moment, <laughs> just like completely. I, I, yeah. yeah, they could like intellectually say it's very rewarding, but like day to day, it was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, every single day was just. And and uh, if anything, that's what kept me from wanting to to to, to uh, run my own show because. Right. The, sh the hours are too long. The yeah. work is too hard uh, for, unless you really, really care about yeah. it. Yeah. And I, and, uh, and that I stayed away from that until, you know, this, this most sure. recent show. I got to say, like, the more I hear about it, being the number two on a show sounds like the dream job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Depends <laughs> who the number one is. Like, that's true. Yeah. That's a good point. The number two with a good boss. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear, sort of picking up, on what Alex was talking about in regards to uh, having a voice on a show that is not yours, mm -hmm. uh, that is not a show you are running or created. Um, Catherine, what's been your experience? What are you expected to bring as, you know, a mid-level yeah. writer? So my experience on NCS New Orleans is probably different than 95% of staff writers, ex story editors, executive story editors, um, for various reasons. Um, so I've been there since the first episode. Mm -hmm. And I was, even though I was an assistant, I was in the room for the first three seasons. So when I got staffed in the fourth season, all it really meant was that I didn't have to leave if the phone rang, you know, like, I like, so I was already comfortable with that. Um, and um, furthermore, I am now the only person who's been on the show the entire time. Wow. So um, wow. that's, that's still there. Um, so and I was the script coordinator, so I'm kind of the keeper of all the things that people have forgotten that, yeah. that have happened. So frequently, I'm the one who <laughs> raises their hand. I'm like the buzzkill who's like, ooh, we did that one already. Or, um, <laughs> and we you know we've had 120 odd episodes, so we've sent a lot. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, just keeping in line with our characters and then just, but because I was already kind of comfortable with the show, I think I was given a little bit more leeway to to pitch and contribute early mm -hmm. um but my kind of philosophy was always like don't say anything unless i'm confident i'm going to knock it out of the park because you know i've worked with those writers that were i don't know advised to pitch every 20 minutes or you know and like and that kind of just like sh slows the room down um but now you know that i'm i'm still lower level but i've just been there so long and <laughs> and i've seen so many things uh so I think I am I'm maybe expected to contribute a little bit more than other low, mm -hmm. lower levels were. That makes sense. But I've just been really lucky because um, while I've been on the same show for six seasons, I've had four showrunners. So I've seen a lot of wow. different styles <laughs> yeah. and learned a lot. And yeah. And yeah, stuff mm -hmm. you'll take with you, I assume, as yeah. you know, you next now go off and run your own show. Mm -hmm. Um uh, Keto, sort of the same question. Mm. You know, you've worked even as in these heavy genre shows and you've been in, you know, this Berlanti and uh, DC world for a while now. Other than your uh, intrinsic fanness, um, where is your personality in these shows? Are you getting to tell stories that are oh, personal absolutely. to you? Absolutely. I mean, Legends of Tomorrow especially is, mm -hmm. you know, it's a family show. It is about a family and it's about a bunch of you know, mm -hmm. strange people, misfits, you know, people who don't really have any other place to be except for on a time ship, you know, <laughs> solving time problems. Who can't uh, I know. So, so for me, I mean, I, 
I come from a very eclectic family and I, and we're all kind of weirdos and, you know, all my friends of, you know, we, we've always sort of prided ourselves on being kind of off, you know, in our, in our fun way. And I, uh, yeah, I love the characters that we get to write on that show. And I love all the genres that we hop mm-hmm. to. I mean, again, it's, we, we change genre basically by episode yeah. and, um, you know, I, grow up a, a huge nerd and loving, you know, all different kinds of movies and comic books. And uh, I, my favorite is horror. And we've even gotten horror on the show, yeah. which has been like so fun. <laughs> uh, and yeah, just getting able to dabble. But mostly it's about, you know, the characters and their relationships to one another. And for me, that is something very, very personal. I mean, I spent most most of my adolescence on a bus traveling <laughs> the world with a singing group and honestly a lot of the what? Sto- the, what what i bring to the show is like knowing what it's like to be in a confined space <laughs> with a bunch of weirdos like having a job to do every night like it's it is it it, it, it is very real <laughs> let's stop for a moment yeah. <laughs> yeah, i want to hear this story i mean we were all going to tell the same story but <laughs> what yeah so um basically between the ages of 10 and 19 um, my, um, my mother still does this, but she is an ethnomusicologist who also runs a massive international choir organization. And so between those ages, I did a lot of traveling with her and her singing group. And I, I sang, so I was with them on stage running oh workshops, gosh. you know, traveling and I traveled the world and I studied folk music from all around the globe and performed it all over North America, all over Europe. And, um, yeah, there was, I basically missed all of eighth grade, most of 10th grade, um, just being on tour, (laughs) um, took a year off in between high school and college just to sort of like say goodbye to that world Mm -hmm. before jumping into film school. Um, but yeah, so actually the wave rider to me (laughs) is basically like the hippie bus that I traveled around. (laughs) Like it feels very, very akin to that. That's really cool. Which sort of leads me to my next question is about how your personal experience has informed the stuff that you're writing. Um, Alex, can you talk about that in regard to um, the terror specifically? You know, often when we go to pitch something, these executives like to hear a personal connection. Was there that for the terror or was it like, this is a show I want to see? Oh, no, there, there, there definitely was. I, and and the show did not originate with me. When, when AMC decided they wanted to uh, make the Terran Anthology yeah. series, uh, they solicited pitches mm-hmm. for uh, uh, for season two. And Max Bornstein, my co-creator, uh, uh, wrote a treatment for this uh, um, ghost story set uh, around the internment. And he wasn't available to uh, write the pilot or run it because uh, he's a very... You know, uh, a successful screenwriter, and uh, and has <laughs> other things to do. Um, and I was already de- in developing things with AMC, and okay. uh, I was in the deal with them. And uh, and they asked me to uh, to read it. And the first question I asked you, you realize I'm not Japanese American. <laughs> just right. Just, are you sure you understand that? But to be fair, there are like three of us working <laughs> like in that upper level right now. <laughs> and you were not available. My <laughs> was not available. And you know, it's like you know, so. Yeah, so I, so I read it, and and I thought it was terrific. But the where I plugged into it mm-hmm. was that this was an immigrant story, 
mm-hmm. and that's how I, I I've uh, I, I've approached it. And that was thematically what all of my playwriting was about. It mm-hmm. was about ideas of Americanness from an Asian American perspective, and usually with some sort of crazy offset, something that was you know really coming at it from a from a, oh, cool. a, a series of increasingly unusual angles. And uh, and here was uh, an opportunity to write about something that I had done when I was doing all my own work in theater that I had never done in, in TV, uh, hmm. you know, writing about yeah. Americanness, uh, from an Asian American perspective. So that's where I plugged into it. And, uh, and I, I think that hopefully makes the show not just, you know, specifically, uh, a show for Japanese Americans, mm-hmm. because though, of course I hope Japanese Americans watch it. The majority, <laughs> the majority of the show is not going to be, uh, viewed by Japanese Americans sure. just because mm-hmm. there's just <laughs> numbers. Uh, but you don't have to go very far in just about anyone's family to get to an immigrant. Absolutely. And, you know, there's obviously, you know, uh, uh, metaphors at play that, you know, you can, you can draw connections of course. Uh, very, very, very easily. So, uh, and there's also, you know, I think you, you were sort of circling this, but there's universality in those specifics, mm-hmm. right? To that, mm-hmm. that Japanese American experience, you were able to relate to it in this way. And I think almost yeah. anyone who watches could it's as the well. The relationship between, you know, the protagonist and his, and his family is, yeah. you know, very much a story that has, that I lived through, but also, you know, wrote about, you know, for, for, a, for a long time. Yeah. Um, that's great. I can't wait. I'm excited to watch it. Uh, it premieres this week I on AMC. I can't wait. I will be watching. Yes. <laughs> um, same question, Catherine. Uh, whether it's mm-hmm. on NCIS uh, New Orleans or in your own writing, how have you translated your personal experience? Sure. Yeah. So I always kind of, in my personal writing, I'm drawn to stories about outsiders. And so that's kind of the things that I write about. And I never really beyond that found an overarching connection. Um, but this last... Uh, season on NCIS New Orleans, I wrote an episode for Chill Mitchell, who's on our show, who's, he's a paraplegic. Um, and I also use a wheelchair. I know the listeners can't tell that from the way I talk, but, um, but that you don't was, have a wheelchair accent. I don't, yeah, surprising. Um, so that was actually the episode that I wrote was very d- directly tied to the disabled experience. Mm-hmm. And that was the very first thing I'd ever written about disability. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was writing it, I was like, this is, I mean, why haven't I done this before? Um, so I'm, now my own personal writing is kind of exploring that more directly. Um, but I think, yeah, I, Alex, what I'm so excited to watch your show, I'm so drawn to stories of, you know, outsiders or underrepresented groups that I might not know of. Like I love, mm-hmm. sh- I love shows like Rami mm-hmm. and, and this close and Vida and like, you know, the community, yeah, communities that I'm not a part of, but yeah. I'm just so interested to, to yeah. like, you know, experience that through the screen. I think um, so many mm-hmm. of us are and, and absolutely, you know, hopefully these are getting yeah. more traction, which was sort of, you know, it's a, it's a heavy question to end with, but what can we do to be more inclusive as you know a community? How can we get more? Why do we only have a handful of Japanese American upper levels to run these shows? You know, why why aren't there more Chinese American? Why aren't there more disabled writers? How can we get them into the community and make sure that they get opportunities? I mean, it's it's tough, and I, I really wish that there were more success stories like mine. I yeah. mean, I 
I was the diversity hire. I, you know, and I say that proudly because I think it's kind of a bad word and mm. I don't think it should be. I mean, I think that that's an opportunity. That's a door open. And it's, you know, I think that is, it's the responsibility, not just of that person, but also of the people around them, the potential mentors, the upper levels to help that person grow and learn as much. Like I had that, I was so lucky, yeah. but I know so many diversity hires who don't get that experience, who don't get that support and sort of get ostracized or sort of pushed to the side or sort of like, oh, they're free. So like, I don't have to worry mm -hmm. about them. You know, right. they're, they'll be here for 20 weeks and then bye, you know, or we'll get another one, you know, it's, and I, I just <coughs> find that attitude so callous and so, um, irresponsible. I just, yeah, I, again, like it. really it, it, like, yes, they might not be perfect. They might not have been in writer's rooms for 10 years. Like, yes, you might have wanted that, you know, that assistant who's, you know, been working their butt off for you to have that spot instead. And like, and of course, like those people deserve that chance too, because anyone who works hard and is serious about writing should have these mm -hmm. opportunities. But again, if we're trying, really trying to build more inclusive and ethnically, culturally diverse voices to have more shows like like yours like again yeah. to have more of these experiences mm -hmm. available for viewers to learn through i i really think you we need to be promoting and nurturing the people who are coming in mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. programs through through whatever means but um Again, I and I and I try to to do that as much as possible in my room. We we do have a very diverse room, and mm -hmm. we have promoted from within, and we have tried to lift up those voices as much as possible and teach them. You know, mm -hmm. again, it's like if yeah. the draft isn't great, like we go through it. I you know, <clears throat> if I do a pass on it, I'm like, here's why I did this. Here's why I did this. Like, mm -hmm. and guess what? The writing gets better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, who would have thought? It's like, right. you know, and, you know, tell them they need to speak up more in the room. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They do. Yeah. You know, it's it's all about, like, you know, you just can't be complacent in it. You have to yeah. be active. Mm -hmm. And, yes, it's more work, but that's the whole point. We right. all put in the work and it, everything gets better. Yeah, mm -hmm. And it's training this next generation yeah. so that they, there's this they're ready gap. for the It's yeah. like you have there's, all these people coming gap. in as staff writer and then it's just like nothing yeah. in the middle mm -hmm. like it's that they people fall out in that mid-level mm -hmm. and then then we have so few of us at the top like yeah. it's crazy and i really think it's because they're not mentored you know and like mm -hmm. and and i think we need to be intentional about hiring diverse voices not because they check a box you know Absolutely. from the diversity program and then let them go after 20 weeks when they're no, not free anymore not but because it's going to add a different perspective to your room and it's going to make your show better mm -hmm. um but then also off of that i really think we need to do a better job at hiring diverse assistants because yeah. so many of the assistants, the are, yes, right. are, are, and I'm, I say this as a white person, so many of the assistants that you see are white. They're yeah. from, you know, the top film schools. And so they're the ones getting that shot at not only the staff writer job, but getting to learn like I did on the job as an assistant so that when I was a staff writer, I was ready to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. I already had totally. that training, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'll say the, the the I think the climate is right, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for for greater diversity everywhere. Um, with so many shows on television, I, I can't pretend to know what happens inside the brains of, of people who program uh, television shows. It's uh, <laughs> a whole other hour, <laughs> but, but but I but I but I'm happy to speculate. Uh, the uh, there is a greater need to to have your 
shows on your network, you know, be more distinctive because there's so much out there. You have to have something yeah. that everyone doesn't already have one of. It's a great point. You know, in order to just be heard in the wilderness. Yeah. So uh, I, I think even maybe five years ago, you know, we asked, like, let's do a show about the internment told the vocabulary of Japanese horror <laughs> and half of it's going to be in Japanese and another part of it's going to be in Spanish. So a lot of subtitles. <laughs> what do you think? Right. Like, no one would have done There's it. There's no yeah. place no for that. No one would have done it. Ago. But I, I, I think you know, now it's like, okay, you know what? We, we, we've seen that that's not that scary. Mm -hmm. People will watch it. People mm -hmm. will come to it. And w and when you have these shows, then well, guess what? You can start staffing them with people who have a very personal connection. That, that right. to me, was hugely important to have as uh, as many uh, Japanese-American uh, writers and, and just storytellers in general uh, as possible. Unfortunately, you weren't available. I asked. <laughs> I really did. I swear I did. Um uh, because the, it was very personal. Sure. You know, we had, I had people coming in. Uh, the, the staffing of the show was actually remarkably easy because it would come and say, I really wanted to come and have this meeting. I really want to work That's on cool. this. It was, it was it's yeah. directors, ADs. That's awesome. We had people yeah. who dropped everything to, you know, our, uh, with two assistant costume designers who quit their jobs to come work on our show. Wow. Our VFX guy quit his job and moved to Canada to do our That's show. Amazing. That's our, fantastic. Our, um, uh, first AD left his job to come do our show uh, because they all had family who were interned, you know? hmm. and 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 w I knew the work was going to be better because yeah. because mm -hmm. it, it's, there was such a personal stake, and also uh, and then when the cast show up, you had George Takei, and you, had, you, you know, mm -hmm. who, who you know, is maybe the most notable person who ever you know experienced the intern, at least still living. Mm -hmm. Uh, everyone started to feel a sense of like we're doing something special, and wow. and. And there is great value in having people who have a real personal connection to that material. So if we're going to do a show that's a little bit different, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to hire writers who are a little bit different mm -hmm. than your normal, uh, uh, than what what, yeah. what a writer's room has looked like for the past 20, 30 years. Yeah. So I do think, hopefully, maybe I'm, I'm being overly optimistic about it, that that uh, that change is coming very, very soon. And it'll happen very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I hope so. But again, mm -hmm. I feel like there is this weird again a, a lack of of um those upper level diverse voices getting those opportunities to tell those stories mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i do see like again when these shows are created like to to celebrate a culture or a specific story and they have that leadership behind the camera like of that culture mm -hmm. it really does add this like incredible richness and incredible distinctness to to that story and i'm again i'm hopeful too that yeah. there will be more again more of those voices rising up the ranks so that they are in those positions to get those meetings to yeah. pitch, mm -hmm. pitch those stories and get them on the air but it is like I, it's going to take a lot of work yeah. um, from the current older generation to nurture that younger generation and to like provide those opportunities and, and kind of from everyone in mm -hmm. every aspect of yeah. at least in in the writing mm -hmm. pipeline mm -hmm. whether it's you know agents submitting or mm -hmm. even taking on new uh rookie writers to the showrunners hiring to networks but, also, but yeah but also like the buyers need to be yeah. more courageous like they just Absolutely. they just need to understand like again they're with, with so much out there it's like yeah. mm -hmm. you gotta set yourself apart yeah. and like how do you do that well you don't tell the same stories by the same people over and over again because yeah. 
you know, when you have the same, the same group doing mm-hmm. that, that's it's it's all regurgitated. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. there um, seems to be more willingness to fast track, you know, uh, to fast track writers too. Mm-hmm. Not what you know what I had to go through. <clears throat> yeah. Of you know one level every year, so you know Tanya Saracho was you know running a show even though she hadn't you know spent yeah. a bunch of years in uh, yeah, uh, because she can speak to that experience mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, but there there is sort of that trade off, mm-hmm. right? Like if you can get this thing that is a personal story on the air and you know hire the people that you want to hire. And you're not costing them a lot of money, which is the bottom line yeah. for, mm-hmm. for these networks and studios. You're going to be able to do that, and it becomes a little bit easier. It makes the process harder, I'm sure. Yeah, Sorry. for sure. Yeah. Um, this does bring us uh, to a good question uh, and our last question, which is, what are you really enjoying on television these days? Mm-hmm. What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your family, your friends, your room? Catherine, let's start with you. Um, okay. I mentioned this in every single interview that I ever do. It's like I'm the publicist for this show because I love it so much. Um, it's called This Close. It's yeah. on mm-hmm. the Sundance channel. Yeah. And it's written by, created by, starring, produced by, written by um, two deaf actors, writers, yeah. Shoshana Stern and Josh Feldman. So great. Like I'm talking about authentic stories. Um, and also Vita, like Alex said, mm-hmm. um, Tiny Sriracha, amazing. And um, Rami on Hulu. Which is, yeah. like, you know, all good answers, all amazing shows. Yeah. yeah, Alex, what are you watching? Oh well, late late at night, my 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 uh, pregnant wife and I love to curl up in bed, turn down the lights, and watch Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> is there a that, more romantic that, show? That's a really romantic. That's, that's a really romantic. I'm sure, the the little baby. We just cuddle up. We just cuddle up and and, and, and watch Chernobyl. Uh, but that's that's another show. By the way, I mean it's, 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 that that is you know shot like a horror movie. Yeah. You know, it, it's you know, yeah. there's nothing supernatural, nothing of, of, of that kind. But it's uh, horrific. But it is in other ways. In, in the entire the way the story is told makes you feel the horror, yeah. you know, down to your bones, and that's and brutal. That's you know, pretty pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. what's going on? Uh, for me, I mean, I, I'm really behind on almost everything. I don't I really think we watch, all I don't watch like current TV. I, I watched Game of Thrones when I was airing because, of course, we had all had to, but um. I, you know, I'm still catching up, but I really, the thing that I've, I've most responded to most recently was, uh, the haunting of Hill house. Mm. And again, that for me, is like character driven horror, which I think is like a genre that has yet to explode and mm-hmm. should be exploding. And it's the stuff I'm trying to pitch and get out there. Right. Like it's, that is the kind of, um, storytelling that I love. Like I love, 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 love horror movies. And I love, um, and, but I also really love character driven things. And like, again, that is like a story about that's terrifying, but matters. And yeah. that's also why I'm very excited for your show. I, 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 <laughs> I agree. I have a, for, for a separate you know, conversation yeah. about how I, I think horror on television has to be character driven. Oh, it has Because it, unlike a film, which is one single emotional mm-hmm. experience, one charged yeah. emotional experience, a TV show goes on for, you know, yeah. sometimes years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even in the course of a season, you know, you have a break between episodes and, and, yeah, you know, it can't all be one, you know, chase through a haunted house, you know. It has to it has to, to follow these characters over time. And there's a great 
value. You can really do some really interesting things, I think, I hope, uh, with, with, with that approach. But it's not going to be, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. Yeah. You, know, episode, mm-hmm. you episode, can't do that. No, you can't. Episode, nor would it actually be that interesting. No. I, I personally don't think. No. But, you know, the, the, the horror that comes with you um, empathizing with these characters who are going through this horrific experience, which I think Chernobyl did really, really mm-hmm. well. You're just like living with them. Yeah, Ugh. that one's on my list. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. You know? and, and and that kind of horror, uh, I think there, there's a real opportunity to be mined in television to tell that story. Because in addition to everything else we mentioned, television is being watched increasingly on small and small, mm-hmm. less and less on a television set. Right. Yeah. And it becomes a very intimate experience, you know, mm-hmm. watching, you know, a show with a tablet six inches from your face with the lights out is a very intimate worm yeah. from your brain in right. a way, a giant screen with you and 250 other people screaming, yeah. don't go in there. It's a very different, <laughs> you know, as fun as it is, which yeah. it is, yes. you know, it's a very different kind of thing. You put it on television. It's, it, you know, th- there's, there's, uh, there's a, a translation, you know, in the medium. Absolutely. That, uh, that, that it's it's a different uh, different kind of viewing experience. Yeah, I think there's and 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 Keto, I think you you nailed this, and it's part of the reason I'm really looking forward to this season of terror. And the reason I I love that first season of terror, and the reason I loved Hill House is, you know, you it has to be character based. Mm-hmm. It has to be kind of a slow burn, mm-hmm. so you can get to love and identify with these characters. Yeah. And it feels like what these shows did well is. You know, the minute you show the monster, it's the Jaws rule, mm-hmm. right? It's the minute you show the monster, you start to lose a little interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're with the characters, I mean, this is, look, I'm just restating what you guys have all said, no, but I've no, been living with this for the past year because we're pitching a show like this. But yeah. uh, it's a tricky thing and there aren't a lot of, there isn't a lot of TV that's done it really well yeah. yet yeah. Uh, other than these two examples. Yeah. And a lot of TV that, that, that you know, you're talking to executives and you're, you're pitching, you know, a lot of the horror touchstones are movies and yeah. it doesn't quite oh, it's hard, yeah. translate you know it's like where are jump scares well if yeah. you do a show that's only jump scares yeah you could do it in a movie you know you get freddy krueger just like yeah. you know jump scaring you for for two hours right but you know it's it's not going to sustain over over months and then potentially years where that's all you're doing so it, it has been challenging to find a a a, a uh uh, find an analog, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in television, and just having getting executives, you know, to to understand. Okay, it's its own thing. Yeah, it feels like and it it's makes new. Yeah, what a thought. Yeah, <laughs> right. But that's <laughs> but it scary. Has, it hasn't been done before. Right. Like, let's do it. Right. And there's more of a willingness. <laughs> we say to take let's that do risk. it. There is more of a willingness. Yeah. There is. Yes, yeah. but it it also makes it a harder pitch yeah, in definitely. many ways. Yeah. Right. Because it's as much as you can have turns through your story. It's not every five minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Look, I could talk about it all day. Thank you all for being here. Uh, You all were wonderful. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Writers Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week.
Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarche. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. <laughs>